encourage you to look in your Bible or on your phone or listen with your ears. I have one verse that is so loaded by one person's life found in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As we've kind of taken a pause from our series on Romans, it takes a lot of prep and study for that. I want to share with you today on a life truth that has changed my life and I believe is going to impact yours. God turning pain into purpose. Genesis 50, 20, let me read it to you. This is Joseph. He was the last Old Testament patriarch. His brothers betrayed him. He was, he was sold into slavery by his family. When he was in slavery, he was falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison, which the Bible describes where he was put as a pit because there was no cable TV, basketball court, or weight room in those prisons. It was a pit. And then he went from the pit to eventually to the palace of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And God put him there so that he might help the world prepare for one of the greatest famines that it ever saw across the face of the earth. And in that moment, when he's finally in that place, his brothers now are in Egypt purchasing grain so that their clan doesn't die. He has them there in front of them. And eventually he reveals himself and he says, you are my brothers who sold me into slavery. You thought I was gone. I'm here. They're terrified because he has the power to kill them. And he looks at him and he says the most powerful words of forgiveness in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you intended for evil, God used for good for the saving of many lives, one version says. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word and your spirit would meet in the middle with our lives, that we would see that these, these events, these people's lives are no different than ours, and that these truths are there to help us to find heart, to know that behind every pain is an opportunity for your purpose and your plan to be revealed through our lives so that you could be glorified. We give you all the praise. We keep none of it for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pain into purpose. Joseph, uh, I, there used to be a day where I could just sit here and assume and just say, we know the story of Joseph. Not everybody knows the story of Joseph. I could say, uh, we know that in the Bible it says many people own Bibles and they never read them. So I, I don't even want to assume this. So if I slow down the story and it seems redundant for you, just know that what we want, I want to, this to be is, is something fresh and crisp the way that God said it. Today in the day that we live, uh, there are so many families parting ways and, and many for good reasons. I mean, no, it's not God's will that somebody be physically abused or or tormented in a relationship. And not every story ends happily ever after. It's just unfortunately the way it is. I did read a statistic recently that Protestant, which is what we are a part of, the Protestant movement, Protestant marriages are now increasing. They used to say that more marriages end in divorce than they, than they do, uh, that, that Christian marriages were right there with people outside of the church. Right now it's 59% of all Protestant marriages stay married. And I think it's just people are trying to make it work. This isn't an indictment on anyone. If you have parted ways with a spouse, I want you to take courage and understand 
that the Bible is filled throughout with a whole theology and a whole group of people that have carried that burden. And the Bible says that if the two become one flesh, then that means that if two people separate, there's a lot of ripping and tearing and a lot of pain and a lot of reason why sometimes we need to go back and deal with our hurt in order to go forward to deal with our life and the loved ones that we have around us. But we would think that blended families is a new thing in our day. And you, for those of you that are over the age of 40, you remember the Brady Bunch, right? Here's the story, sing it with me, of lovely lady, right? And she had bringing up three very lovely girls. And then the guy met, the two came together. He brought his three boys, they brought their three girls. And then we realized that's why you don't play ball in the house. And those of you that are laughing know that episode. So, And we would think that that's something new, blended families, but it's not. Joseph was a part of a blended family. You see, his father is Jacob, the big patriarchs, the big uh, founding fathers in Judaism it, are not George Washington, Adams. It, it is actually Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these are, so the great-grandfather of Joseph is Abraham. The grandfather of Joseph is Isaac, and his father is Jacob. And Jacob's story is really unique because he falls in love with a girl named Rachel. And he says, I will do whatever I need to prove myself that your daughter is in good hands. And many of you, when you ask for your wife's hand in marriage, might have gone to somebody in the family and say, I just want the honor of asking for your daughter's hand in marriage. And, and, and that whole move of chivalry is a good thing. And so he, he goes to his soon-to-be father-in-law and he says, sure, you can have her but you got to work for me for seven and a half years, right? How many of you would say seven and a half years would have been a really difficult time to stay in a particular job, right? And he's like, you are, okay, so I work for you for seven and a half years, and then you give me my wife. So that's what Jacob does. He works seven and a half years, and the Bible says that it was like nothing to him because he loved her and it just flew by and the day comes for him to get married and he's there and the veils over her face and the wine is flowing and the joy and the celebration of those Jewish weddings are happening and then it's that moment of truth and he goes to kiss the bride and he lifts it up and he goes hmm and it's not Rachel but it's the other daughter sister Leia, not Princess Leia from Star Wars, Pastor Dylan. It's Leia. He's like, didn't I just? And he goes up to his father-in-law. What's interesting about Jacob is, is Jacob, you know, I don't know about you. There are lots of heroes in the Bible I can relate to. I can't relate to John or Daniel and all these visions and always doing the right thing at the right time. Peter's my kind of guy, right? Like putting his foot in his mouth one minute, Jesus is like, God has revealed this to you. And the next minute, Jesus is like, you're a demon, get away from me. You know, get behind me, Satan. Like Jacob is my kind of guy because he, he just didn't have his stuff together. The Bible says his name means grabber, deceiver, manipulator, supplanter. And can I tell you that if God has something for your life, you don't have to manipulate it into existence. You don't have to grab it to make it happen. And if you have to do those things in order to have it happen, maybe it's not God's will for your life. And that's what Jacob meant. He was being born and his, his brother Esau was coming out first. And the Bible says that his brother grabbed his heel. Literally, that's where his name comes from, the grabber. And it's like, you're not going first. 
and he yanks him back in the womb. Do you imagine the force of a newborn child doing something like that? It's just mind-blowing. And that's the story of his life. He's always grabbing, trying to make it happen, make, make, get ahead of the game, uh, make things work out. And now the guy, the manipulator, is being manipulated. And he's sitting there saying, I worked for seven and a half years. And, and he goes, oh, there's a custom in our tradition. I don't know if you knew this. Your father might have, should have told you this, but it's tradition that the oldest daughter gets married first. And he's like, what? He goes, but we're having a sale two for one today. I will throw in Rachel if you work for me for seven and a half more years. How many of you ever watch American Pickers, right? And when they ask for something and somebody throws this ridiculous price out, they do this two for one bargain and they find something else that they want. And they're like, hey, that thing right there, I know you want like $1,000 for that. But if, if, you, if I just pay 50 more dollars and you throw that in there, we'll take the two of them together. And then they're like, oh, okay, you know, and they do that. And then they realize they actually got the bargain back. And so the father's like, I'll give you both of them. And you can, I mean, this is really complicated family stuff. You think that your blended family is complex? Forget it. J Joseph and Jacob, they had, you have nothing on them. And so he finally gets his bride, works another seven and a half years, and the story moves on. And now they're in Israel. And Jacob has all of his sons there. Half of them are from Leah, the other half, two. Joseph and Benjamin are from the one he loved and the one he wanted, Rachel. And I got to give it to him. You know, he maintained the relationship. And just because the Bible says that something happened doesn't mean that it approves of what's happening there. That gives me comfort. You know, the Bible says that these things were written that we might gain hope and that these things are written so that we might learn from their bad examples. And so like these things here are happening and this is, this is his story. And it's just one big, complicated, blended relationship, if I could just throw this in as a side caveat, the names of Leah's sons are beautiful because they're really literally used to have a woman who feels unloved and second rate, and God gives her sons that all each of their names represent the thing that God does for her that she'll never find in her relationship because her, the man's heart belongs to her sister. Judah, praise she learned praise, to know that praise isn't dependent upon your circumstances or whether you're loved or not loved or whether you're doing well or not doing well, that God can put praise in your life. And that's how the name in the tribe of Judah came about. And we could go through all of those. But Joseph, Joseph's the oldest son of Rachel. Reuben is the oldest son of Leah. And there's meaning to this. You see, there's a reason why he ended up and the tradition was the first daughter goes because there's another tradition in Jewish patriarch life. And that's that the oldest son becomes the next king of the tribe, the next patriarch. Now, technically, the oldest would have been Reuben, who is Leah's first son, and he should have been, by right, patriarch. But all of this just doesn't make sense because, in fact, Esau and Jacob, Jacob's brother Esau, was the one that should have been chosen. But no, it was Jacob. God says, Jacob have I loved. And so the story has this significance of the oldest seeming not to be the first and the first seeming to be the last. And he gets the, the older daughter first and he should be putting this title of next patriarch on, on Reuben, but instead he puts it on Joseph. 
And how do we know that? The Bible says that he gave Joseph a coat of many colors for reasons that we just don't have time here. It's a translation problem that went from the Latin Vulgate into the English. It's wrong. It doesn't mean a multicolored coat. It was literally a kotehof. It's a, a long-sleeved coat, and it would be the equivalent of the royal robes on a king or a queen, and it was patriarchal jacket that made everybody know that you are the king in training. You're the patriarch in training. And, J and J Joseph, um, Jacob puts that on Joseph. Now imagine that. Joseph has got to be like nine, ten years old. And he's got a brother over here that's probably about like 25. And he's like, what? Right there starts Joseph's misery. The Bible says that he loved the children of Rachel. You know what? I believe with all of my heart that when God expands your family, whether by more children or by marrying other people, that he can put and multiply love in your heart. He doesn't have to add to it. But there's a tension there. And the father, in a lack of wisdom, puts the favor on Joseph and begins his pain. Because Joseph is young and immature. And he walks around and he's like, I'm the next patriarch. You need to do what? And now what happens is, is that God gives him dreams. All of the life of Joseph, you can find it in chapter 37 through 50 of Genesis. And I encourage you to read that. But his first dream goes like this. He sees sheaves, which are grain harvest, piles, stalks of, of wheat gathered together. And he sees them all representing his brothers. And he's in the middle. And his sheaf is in the middle. And all of them fall over and bow down to him. How many of you have a little brother or sister that you used to torture? <clears throat> and so imagine that little brother or sister just walks in and goes, Hey, had a dream you all bowed down to moi. How do you think that's going to go over? Let the beatings begin. And it says that, they hated him for it. And then later on, he has another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. And he shares it. And his father comes up to him this time and says, Joseph, I love you. I know you're going to be the next patriarch, but you're crossing a line here. Are your mother and I to bow down to you? Now you're crossing like conventional um, order here. Like, you know, you're our kid. Like, what do you think this is? But He's just going through and saying, that's what I saw, you know. God's got good plans for me. Years and years of working in Bible college, I've never, ever once ever regretted the beauty of watching young people say, God's got a plan for my life. God's going to do something through my life. And it's amazing. Even now, years later, there are so many young people, when they lose their way or something happens in their life, they, they make their way back to my wife and I, and we have this reputation of what we call couch talks where sooner or later, those people, when they're struggling, they come back and they're looking for help and they know that my wife and I are safe and they know that we understand ministry. And so they find themselves on our couch, which actually has been the same couch for, for a decade, couple of decades, many, many, many moons. But we, you know, even sometimes they'll be sitting there and they'll start laughing and they're like, oh my goodness, we're part of the couch talks, you know? And they, they just, 
they find their way back. But, but it's, not, it's, it's great to know, and it's important, I think, for you to know that God's call is not just for Bible college students. God has a call for your life. God has a purpose for your life. You're not an accident. You're not called to be born, to have a job, to marry someone. The meaning of life is not to have children. That just shows us how we get here, not why we're here. God wants to use you where he's placed you to glorify himself through your life. You're not an accident, and you're not just somebody trying to seize your destiny, carpe diem or carpe manana, however you want to look at it. God's got a plan for your life, and it's not just for Bible college people. It's for every single one of us. We're all called to be God's children, to be light and darkness, to have purpose, to make a difference, to find our discover our purpose and make a difference. God's called all of us to that. And he wants to put a dream in our heart. And that's how it usually happens. And sometimes it's more magnified than others. But God comes and he gives us a dream. But there's a danger in how you handle that. I'd like to give you just three quick bullets, if I could, about dreams. Whether it's something you see as you sleep or an ideal that you have for your life. Dream number one, rule, principle number one here would be this. Be careful who you tell your dreams to. Joseph really lacked discretion that he used it for bragging rights, which brings me to the second point that's important to understand about dreams. Principle number two is this. The reality and fulfillment of that dream never looks like the dream when you have it. We look at things through the lens of our American toxic self-centeredness, and we say, God's dream for my life is, is that I'm going to I'm going to be prosperous and I'm going to be blessed. We've almost become hedonists that if it costs me anything, it can't be God. If I have to pay a price for something, it can't be God. Sorry, but God's greatest plan for this world came through his son Jesus and it was God's will that he would suffer so that many would be saved. And I don't know if I can relate to Jesus, but I can definitely relate to Joseph that sometimes when we have a dream and it comes to us and it doesn't happen the way that we think it should or it goes sideways or the way that we pictured it, we can lose heart, but it's important to understand that the dream never looks like the fulfillment. And that is why principle number three you should not be the one to chase the dream. Let the dream chase you. God knows how to bring his will about for our life if we are willing. God is willing to supersede the difficulties of our life if we're willing to surrender. In fact, you don't get up by going up. You get up by going down usually. That if we submit ourselves to God, then it's easy for him to bring his plan into our life. And that was Joseph's immature problem. And he said, no. The brothers looked at him and they said, we're jealous of him, we hate him, let's kill him. Let's kill him. So Joseph, his father says, go find your brothers. Poor little victim. He's going out there, he's got his little coat on. And... Uh, he finally finds his brothers and they saw him coming from a distance and the Bible says this and they said, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Some of you in this room, some of the deepest wounds in your life have come at the hand of some of the closest relatives. And I love what God says through Joseph for us. As for you, you meant evil against me. 
Do you know, in order to properly grieve, you have to properly frame something. I, I have a tradition kind of with any of the people I work with and especially with my family. When somebody starts to apologize, it's tempting to just say, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And I stop them and I say, stop. I said, it's important I own my junk. And I admit to you, I did something wrong and I'm sorry. And the proper response for you is to say, not it's okay, but for you to say, I forgive you. You see, because it's easy to say I it's okay when in fact what you're not doing is forgiving that person. And that's what Jesus and that's what Joseph do. To say you intended it for evil. Listen, the pains that you had, the betrayals that you've had in your life, they were intentional. When my father-in-law says this to me, Paul, when you reach the age of 40, you're at a phase of life. It's not that you don't understand what's happening. It's just a question of whether you like it or not and what you're going to do about it. There's lots of times in my younger years, I thought, why is this happening? And you try to make things work out. And then you, you realize, I just really didn't understand what was going on. Now that I'm older, I look at something. I'm like, I know exactly what's going on. And I don't like it. Now I need to decide how to respond the way that Christ would want me to. He, he's betrayed. He's betrayed. He's technically trafficked because they not only attempt to kill him, but then they sell him as a slave to the Midianites who are on their way to Egypt. And they fill their pockets with silver, just like Judas did with Jesus. They create a story that his brother was killed by an animal. They soak his wonderful little coat now in blood. And they sell the story to his father. And the Bible says that he grieved all the days of his life. Have you ever been responsible for a lie to hide a truth? that really just created nothing but pain for decades. I'll never forget two young ladies in my younger years. They're not young ladies anymore, but uh, their stories, I haven't asked them for permission to share, so I won't share their names or the details of it, but uh, one of them was a young lady who's always responsible for a lot of drama. My friend Mike Caparelli, he's got his PhD in psychology. He says, there's always drama behind, there's always trauma behind the drama. There's always trauma behind the drama. I was like, that's a pretty wise statement. Hurt people, hurt other people. There's always trauma behind the drama. But I'll never forget years and years of watching this young lady hurt other people and hurt herself even in the process. And early on, I got the privilege with a couple of my friends. We went back to her hometown and to her home church and I met her parents. And when I met them at the beginning of this journey, I looked and I was like, oh my goodness, this poor girl. I'll never forget her telling me the story of how she picked up the phone at Christmas time to call her mother and father because they had estranged her, betrayed her, rejected her. And she says, I'm just calling you to tell you that I have a beautiful baby boy. And they're like, who's this? This is your daughter calling you to tell you, I just gave birth to my beautiful baby boy. And she's reaching back to her family. And they said, daughter, you don't have a daughter. That's probably how Joseph felt. I'll never forget another friend of ours, my wife and I, who, you know, when you're adopted, there's always this struggle to just want some resolution. And she, for years, was wanting to figure out who's my mom and just to meet her. And she had these ideas of what it would be like when she finally found her. And she did. And so 
while she was with us on a team, she went up, found her mom, knocked on the door of this really nice house, door opens. She says, are you this person? And the lady says, yes. She goes, oh my goodness, I can't believe I found you. You're my mom. You're my mom. I, I needed to meet you. She gets a look of terror on her face. She steps outside the door, closes it behind her and looks at her and says, you can never come here ever again. Nobody knows that you were ever around. That's probably how Joseph felt. Maybe that's how you feel in the betrayals that you've experienced. And I'll tell you what, Joseph was onto something. As for you, you meant evil against me. It's sad, but it's true. Hurt people hurt people. Some people do things because they want to do those things. Where the truth is, is tra there's trauma behind their drama. And just when you thought that that would be enough, where does Joseph find himself? <clears throat> he finds himself as a slave, but he gets a break because the guy is Potiphar, and he is pretty much the equivalent of the general of the Navy SEALs of Pharaoh's army. He's the elite commander of the elite commandos that, that are part of Pharaoh's army. And it doesn't take him long to notice that Joseph, everything that he does, he does with excellence. But in the midst of this, Joseph is on the receiving end of a lie. And I will tell you that the world is filled, unfortunately and sadly, with more true stories about people that have been raped. But in this one case, and in some cases, this man Joseph is trying to take care of his master's house, is found to so worthy, he leaves him, does it so well, Potiphar trusts him with everything, Except the problem is, is that Potiphar really shouldn't have trusted his wife. And Joseph finds himself, her constantly making passes at him. And he's like, I can't do this. I can't do this to my master. And, and finally, at one point, he, he's like, I ha I, I need, she, he knows if I stay here, something's going to happen. And he takes off and she grabs his coat and his coat pulls off of him and he runs out completely without clothes. It, the story doesn't look good. And so what happens at that moment, she says, he, he did this to me. And what does, Pharaoh, what does this man Potiphar do? Now, if it wasn't bad enough that he was, Joseph was thrown into a pit, if it wasn't bad enough that he was sold into slavery, now he's thrown into one of the most terrible prisons on the face of the earth, the Egyptian prison. And the word that's used for the prison that he's sent to is not prison, it's a pit. Have you ever found yourself, years later, after the desire and dreams you have for your life, in a place where you have to look and say, there's no way that they could have ever possibly happened? That's how Joseph felt. All hope is gone. Oh, God. Curse even the thought of dreaming. Have you ever been in such a deep pit in your life that you don't even dare allow yourself to dream because the possibility of anything good coming out of it just is too painful and reminds you of what could have been, should have been, and would have been, but just will never be. I love how Corey Ten Boone, survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp, one time they were going through the numbers and they accidentally called her number as a prisoner to be released. It was a complete accident, but she would travel the world. She stayed with a pastor, college president, uh, that I sat under 
in her latter years of her life, living in his home, Ben Crandall, living in his home, and she would go around the world telling her story, and she would always say this one thing over and over again, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. And no matter what pit you may find yourself in this morning, if I could just remind you of a truth that if someone can survive a holocaust and say this, then our momentary light and fleeting difficulties and challenges, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. There's no pit that is outside of the reach or grasp of the God that you and I have put our hope and trust in. Yes, those people intended it for evil. Yes, they were meaning to be mean. Yes, they were trying to hurt you. There's no denying that. You can't evade it. It doesn't feel good to even say it. it and, and you shouldn't, you know, you can go through the whole, did I bring this on myself? Am I guilty of that? It's all irrelevant. What's more important than all of it is that when you realize, as for you, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good to bring about many people to be kept alive. And God wants to take your pain and turn it into purpose if you're willing to trust him, if you're willing to put your life in his hands, if instead of shaking your fist and saying, why did you do this to me? Listen, the Bible says it like this. We know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God says, look at everything that's happening in your life and say that it's good. He says, no, if you put your trust in me, if you stop trying to manipulate the outcome, if you're willing to put your trust and hope in me, if you're willing to rely on me, if you're willing to give me my, your pain, and offer it to me as a sacrifice, the same way that my son did. If you as a son or daughter will take that hurt and that betrayal and you'll offer it up to me, I'll take that pain and I won't say that it was my purpose for you to hurt that, but I'll bring out a purpose out of your life that'll change people forever. And every one of you are called to that. That's the God that we serve. Pearls are not made because oysters just look pretty and throw out these things. They're made because a chunk of sand gets inside the oyster and their nerves are so sensitive, it's excruciating. And if that, if that sand is left alone, it will eventually shred and kill the life of that oyster. So what does it do? It covers the sand and it covers it and it covers it. I didn't know this until my wife told me. She's a pretty smart girl. And the way that you can tell the difference between a real pearl and a fake pearl is if you take those plastic puppies and just scrape your teeth on them. If it's smooth, it's fake. If it's a real pearl, you'll feel the grip. Some of you are going to go home and say, did that guy really give me pearls or not? Right? <laughs> you know, it's like a diamond, you know? It's a zirconian interest. If you'll allow the pain of your problem to be covered again and again, over and over. God will produce pearls from your life, but not without the power of forgiveness. That's what releases that magic that makes that jewel what it is. You have to forgive. You have to forgive. And you have to submit to God. See, this Christian life, it's easy to be an unbeliever, it's easy. Let's eat, drink, and be married. Can I tell you something? I know how to party. I know there are a lot better things to be had out there in the moment. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a moment, but we, I also understand eternity's real, heaven's real, Jesus is real. And so I don't, 
I don't avoid things because they're, I'm like, like it's coronavirus, like, ah, sin, I don't want to. No, I, I avoid that because I know that eternity is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Jesus is real. And I'm freed from the condemnation of the burden of the law. I, I'll never be good enough, never was, never will be. But now I do the right things, not because I have to or because I'm afraid. I'm not legalistic about it, but I do it because I love and trust the God whom I have entrusted myself to. Paul, I love how the New Testament says it, that Jesus entrusted himself to the one, him. And if you've got trust issues in your life, can I tell you something? Trust him. If you can't trust people, trust him. In fact, you'll never be able to trust people if you can't learn to trust God. You'll always try to control the outcomes. You'll always try to insulate your life, protect yourself. You need to learn to trust God. You need to learn what Jesus did, where he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you have to grace it. And that's what Joseph did when his brother sold him as a slave. And here's an interesting fact. I just want you to catch this. Quality is missing in the day that we live. It's hard to find a solid saint. Because the one thing that makes Joseph thrive in every place that he goes is he says, I'm going to bring the best of me to the worst of my situation. You see, the worst of his situation was that his brothers sold him as a slave. And he said, I don't want to be here, but I'm going to submit to God, I'm going to submit to the situation, and I'm going to be the best servant that I can. And he became the most trusted person in Potiphar's house. And then if he gets betrayed and he's thrown into a prison, and he could have just ended it there, Ended his life, given up, but he said, no, I'm going to bring the very best of me to the worst of this situation and glorify the God who I trust and serve. And he did it. And while he's in that prison doing time, the warden entrusts him with everything. Oh, I want to be that person. God desperately wants you to be that person that brings the best of you to the worst of it. Because we have this thing where we think that if we are removed from our circumstances or it changes or we get more money or we get a, a, another person to do life with us or if only the situation changes, no, no, that is, that's not it. You have to bring the best of you to the worst of it. And it's through that that God works out his glory and his honor and the very best of things. Lord, be Lord of every area of my life. A college student friend of mine, author Mark Batterson said it like this, either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I didn't say you have to like what's going on in your life. And Joseph definitely wouldn't say that. But you got to bring the best of you and the best of him through you to the worst of that. And that is how God does miracles. Because while he's in prison, two guys show up. It's a, a baker and a cupbearer. Every king had a cupbearer that would test the drink before they gave it to the king to make sure he wasn't poisoned. How many of you want that job? But then there was also the baker who, and for some reason, these two men really upset the king and he threw them in prison. And while they're there, they go to Joseph and they say, we had a dream. And Joseph says, tell me your dream. Do not interpretations belong to God? And so they tell him his dream. And this is a gift. This is a unique gift that God had. And, and he says, well, I was dreaming and he, he the baker shares his dream and the, the cupbearer shares his dream. They both have these representations of three 
baskets is three days and the other guy has three vines, which represent three days. And Joseph says, hey, got some good news and some bad news. Good news for you, cupbearer. Three, the three vines are three days and in three days you'll be established and be handing the king back his cup again. He goes, oh, I, oh, I hope so because this place is terrible. Then he turns to the baker and he, and he says, what about me? What about me? And he goes, bad news for you, bro. Three days, you're gonna have your head taken from your body. And it happens the way that Joseph says, except when he's leaving, he says to the cupbearer, he says, I'll tell you, here's the interpretation, but only remember me. Remember me when you go back to Pharaoh's palace and know that I'm here and I'm innocent. How many of you have ever found yourself in a difficult, desperate situation and you were just begging God that a person would put in a good word for you? No word from man will ever do for you what God can do for you. Because the truth of the matter is, is that cupbearer forgot Joseph. He, some time goes by, I don't know if it's months, could be years. And the king, Pharaoh, has a vision. He sees seven fat cows and then seven lean cows. And the seven lean cows, anorexic cows, eat the other hefty ones. And then he sees the same thing with grain. And he asks and he tells this dream to all of his magicians, his sorcerers. And what, what does this dream mean? In fact, in Egypt, there's a book of dreams. It's a very big thing for them. And they say, hey, he says, Pharaoh, live forever. I'm reminded now of my, my failures where you put me in prison. And while I was in prison, there was this guy who interpreted dreams. And he says, bring him to me. Now Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. And I love how Joseph replies to Pharaoh. He says, I've been told that the spirit of the gods are in you and that you, you can interpret dreams. And he says, no, no, no. Interpretations belong to God. How many of you, when you're asked about your faith, clothe it and dress it in really nice language. Well, there's a big guy in the sky and <laughs> here the guy is in front of the most powerful person and he still gives glory in the right direction. How many of you want to be that person? That's what God calls us to, not to mince words. Joseph, he could have been like, I, I don't want to hear about your God or anything. Throw him back in prison. We'll figure it out without him. But instead, Joseph says, interpretations, they belong to God. And he tells him, here's your dream. This is what you dreamt. This is what it means. There's going to be a great famine. Now, here's an interesting historical truth. All throughout the Middle East, no rain means no crops, means you die. This is still a, re a reality in many parts of the world. There is no Shaw's market basket stop and shop. No rain, no harvest, no food, you die. But the one thing about the ancient world was that no matter what happened anywhere else, you could always count on Egypt. See, Egypt has one of four rivers in the world that flows south to north, the Nile. The Amazon's another one of them. But what the Nile does is, I believe it's in the middle of Kenya. I could be wrong on how far that reaches, but all the way down into the middle of Africa, the snow-capped mountains melt, they flow, they feed the Nile River, and every year the river rises, it brings fresh, rich dirt to cover the sands of Egypt, and it recedes just in the perfect time in order for you to put down the seeds for the crop. And then at the right moment, it comes and it floods over again to finish watering it so that it comes to harvest. And no matter what the rest of the world dealt with, you could always go to Egypt and get grain. So this vision that Pharaoh has means that the whole world is going to starve to death. 
And Joseph says to him, what you need to do is appoint somebody over your kingdom and make them collect the grain and prepare for seven years so that we're thinking ahead. You know what? Some people have a gift of futuring, thinking ahead, getting ahead of the curve. Don't be annoyed by them. Let them do their things. In Joseph's case, he saved the world. And he says, Pharaoh, do this. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh turns to him and he says, who better, who better than this man who has the spirit of the gods within him? He's just trying to figure it out based off of his faith. But he says, who better than this man to do it? And in one moment, all of those nightmares that Joseph experienced, all of those dreams that he had shattered, in one moment are instantly fulfilled. And Pharaoh puts his ring on his finger, which was a symbol that he had the authority of the most powerful man on the face of the earth. The Bible says that Joseph is clothed in robes. And at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and in the Met in New York City, you can see a gold necklace of valor. Of, they call it the gold of valor. And they put that gold of valor over Joseph's neck. And in one moment, he goes from the lowest pit of slavery, prison, to instantly being the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. That's how your God works. And it doesn't come from a good word from man, and it doesn't come from a good opportunity of manipulation. It comes from when you do what Joseph does, is that you bring the best of yourself to the worst of your situation, and you trust yourself into the hands of a God that knows that your pain has purpose, and that that is how God works out all things for good. Do you know that the anointing oil, the way that they get it, it's wonderful for us to smell, but it's horrible. They go up to a myrrh tree and they smash it. And all through the night, it bleeds chunks of myrrh and they harden in the air. They call them the tears of myrrh and they break them off and they gather them that way. The same thing with frankincense, they slash the tree the tree bleeds out like maple syrup. It's wonderful for you and me. It's, it smells beautiful for you and me, not so good for the tree. And what's interesting about the myrrh is this, is that it smells beautiful to everyone around them, but to the taste, it's nauseating. See, God wants to bring purpose and anointing from your pain if you're willing to do it his way and trust him. And I'm going to ask, Boaz, if you'd come up as I close here with this thought and this verse. Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As I was talking about at the beginning of service, this thing that my wife and I do, we call them couch talks. It's one of the most precious honors. I have to say, I, I love being your pastor, but I think one of the highest honors for my wife and I has been being able to watch young people called of God find themselves in a difficult place and being able to help them realize that there's no pit so deep that the love of God's not deeper still, to help watch God restore their life. And it's been a beautiful journey. One of the more beautiful ones just reached out to me recently. His name was Michael O'Brien. Michael is six feet, six inches. He's gigantic. In fact, recently he went to share his story with a church and that was three hours away from his home. And um, he realized he forgot his clothes and they were like, oh, no big deal. We will totally buy whatever you need from, from the store. And he's like, you don't understand. They don't sell stuff in my size. He's gigantic. He has a twin brother. 
when he was a little child, his mother was so hurt, so much in pain, and hurt people hurt people. She was just so horrible to them. The courts would come in, take the kids out, and rightly so, they, they favor reunification because if you can help restore somebody, who better than that family to be with? But in some cases, it's not. And in his case, it wasn't. He remembers times when he would be at a foster home and his mom would be getting custody of him again and he would run up under the bed that he called home and he would sit under there shaking and crying, begging them not to take him, but the court order would mean that he would have to go back. One day he was in his house, second floor story apartment. I want to say it was third, but I'm going to keep it from exaggerating it. Second floor apartment. And in a moment of rage and anger, his mom threw his brother out the window and tried throwing him out, but he managed to elude her. He went to the hospital, had his wounds mended, was restored back to his home. And unbeknownst to him the whole time that he thought he was suffering in silence and couldn't understand why the person that was supposed to be the number one protector of his life was the number one inflictor of nightmares and pain. There was a woman that would walk the hospital all the time, praying, saying, oh God, lead me. Lead me. She had adopted seven children from that hospital through walking those halls, finding hurting children in difficult situations, and she would say, I'll take them. I'll take them. Finally, his mom, in a fit of anger and rage, scalding hot water in the bathtub, threw him and his brother in, second and third degree burns. And finally the court said, enough is enough. And he found himself taken into the home of this woman that walked the halls, saying, oh God, help me change a life. Help me make a difference. And he goes everywhere now. And he says, God was able to take my pain and now I follow him and serve him, and I'm serving his purpose and making a difference around the world. And if God can do that for my little brother, Michael, he can do it for you. But he said this one piece to me that really made it all fit. He says, but you can't do it if you refuse to forgive. See, many of you in this room here this morning, you've been hurt very deeply. And it's one thing to say to somebody when they're trying to apologize to you, to say, it's okay, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. No, 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 you can't do that. Because Jesus looked at his crucifiers and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Didn't mean that Jesus was like, it's all good. It's all good, Lord. It'll all work out. No, he suffered. And they intended to hurt him. And you suffered. And they intended to hurt you. But the only way that this thing works of finding eternal purpose in your life and making a difference is that you're able to look back over those hurts and you're able to say with Jesus and you're able to say with Joseph, I forgive you. And when you put that key in the door and you unlock that prison, that pit, that place where it happened, and you begin to move on in your life, it's kind of ironic. But as you take your first few steps, you realize that you were actually the one in that jail all along. Everybody else moved on with their life. Well, you don't understand, Pastor Paul. They're not around anymore. I'll never forget my friend Joseph Brandon, who suffered 
had a horrible father who died in a bar fight, murdered, and caused havoc his whole life, and havoc for him. And he went back to his grave, even painted the story, and we used to tell it in the inner city. And he went to his father's grave, and he said, Father, I... I forgive you. You see, when you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that you're asking for them to look back at you and say, that for them to say, sorry. Have you ever tried to prop an apology? Hey, listen, I forgive you. And you're only saying that because you're waiting for them to say, well, I, 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 just, I need your forgiveness because I've done you worse. No, that's not, you're never gonna get anywhere with that, but you need to look without even looking at them. You don't even have, they don't even have to be alive. They don't have to be a part of your world. You don't even need to hear sorry from them. You just need to look back there and say, Father, as the Lord has forgiven me, I forgive them and I want to move on in my life and I offer you my pain and I ask, oh God, that you would make purpose out of my life. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, Lord, because that type of forgiveness saved the world. Saved the world. Whose world can God change through yours if you're able to do that? And if you'd stand across this room, I'd like you to listen to my prayer and make it yours. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I come before you. And I bring every hurt. The truth is, it wasn't an accident. These people meant to take what they took, to inflict what they inflicted, to do what they did. In fact, it's not healthy for me to just ignore that or not embrace that truth. I, I can't grieve proper. Joseph was able to grieve proper over this. Jesus was able to grieve proper over it. There was no denying. It was intentional and it was cruel. So Lord, I, I take a step through that door and say, I recognize it was wrong. But now I step into a new place in my life where I look back and I don't really care if they don't want my forgiveness. My peace, my serenity, my life deserves to be free and in peace. And so because of that, I forgive them. I release them. Lord, if Michael O'Brien can forgive a mother who did those things to him, if Joseph can forgive a family who did those things to him, and if Jesus can forgive a world that did those things to them, then I can move forward from my prison of hurt and into my purpose to bring the very best of me to the very worst of the world around me. I'm not looking for a new place and a new space, Lord. What I'm looking for is a new me to bring the very best version of me to the very worst of my situation. I'm yours, Lord. Lord, you don't own 75% of me. Either you're Lord of all or you're not all Lord at all. All that I have is yours. Thank you for the freedom that's in Jesus and remind us that we need to come back to this place again and again. But Lord, we mean it with all of our heart. Today, I pray that hurts that we've held will heal and chains that we're connected to it will remain free from us for the rest of our life. Today, people are getting free. All over this room, I'm telling you, God is setting you free. God is setting you free. Come on, there's somebody you're thinking of. Just say it out loud. I forgive them. We forgive them, Lord. As the Lord has forgiven us, so we forgive them, Lord. We release that situation and we walk what they intended for evil into the purpose you intend for good for the saving of many lives. We give you glory and we give you honor and praise. We give you us, the best of us.
in Jesus' name.